You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Michael Plesha. Mike is an accomplished executive business leader with over 20 years of experience in global operations, sales and marketing, strategic planning, and value chain solution design. On this week's episode, we talk about expense and spend management. Is this the job of the CFO, the controller, purchasing who? Does it change as a company grows? What is tailspin and why is it difficult to manage? How does one go about finding hidden savings opportunities? How often should the CEO and CFO look over expenses? And what should or shouldn't companies outsource? This is much more on this week's episode of Silicon Valley Podcast. So let's begin. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Welcome to this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, I'm very excited for today's episode. I'm with Michael, who I've known now for years. We've met at Provisors and now ACG. And well, basically, if you're in Silicon Valley, you're going to run across this guy probably multiple times every week. But Michael, I've known you for years. Can you tell our audience, though, a little bit about your career up until this point? Sure. Thanks very much for having me, Sean. This is great. I'm quite flattered. So from a career perspective... I have always been, or I got my start, if you will, in manufacturing and supply chain. The idea being is I was working for, at the time, one of the world's largest tier one contract manufacturer, a company called Selectron. And it was a fascinating experience. I had originally started business development role with them, but you quickly find out that you get pulled into multiple disciplines and in electronics manufacturing, that, that could be broad. That could be you're sitting in materials meetings, you're sitting in test meetings, you're sitting in sourcing meetings, client engagement. So it's meeting after meeting, which makes it a little bit difficult to get anything done at the end of the day. But I've started way back then, and I've always been, I grew to become very fascinated with how manufacturing works. What are the elements? What does it take to build a set-top box? Or back in those days, it was external CD-ROM drives for Apple. I mean, how does that happen? So I stayed in that world for quite a while and had the benefit, had the opportunity to build a lot of various, very interesting technology products back then. Ultimately ended up, a little later in my career, ended up as a business unit manager building first-generation set-top boxes for the cable industry. The first triple play voice data, having it all on one box and what has evolved into being a common item in everybody's home. So that was interesting because you're chasing everything from integrated circuits to plastic bezels and housings and the little rubber feet that go on the bottom of the box. I mean, it's wild. It was crazy. It was an awful lot of fun. So I kind of went from that world into consulting at expense reduction analysts quite by chance more than anything else. I was referred a friend of mine to the organization. Somebody wanted a gentleman that I ended up working for a number of years. He was looking to build out his practice area and we started a conversation and six months later I came to work for the organization and it's been incredible. So you'd mentioned expense reduction analysis, right? Analysts. Analysts. Uh Okay. So tell us what you do. What's that process and what is it? Sure. So ERA, which is much easier on the tongue, is an organization originally started by chartered accountants in the UK. 
in 92, and it grew here to the U.S. in 2002. But essentially, it's an organization that built on the premise that in the middle market, most companies, regardless of their industry, leave a fair amount on the table in some of the most unusual expense categories. Maybe not so much in direct material, because just from my experiences in manufacturing, you build capacity, you build capability and commodity management. So you get to know those supplier markets really well. That isn't necessarily the case for some of the other parts of the, call it the bill of material or even the organization. So what we're doing is bringing capability in terms of that rich subject matter expertise, the very bespoke supplier industry knowledge that our clients can use and we can help leverage their negotiation, if you will, to their supplier base so that they can get better outcomes, improve their financial condition, obviously trickling down all the way down to operating margin, EBITDA, valuation, those kinds of things. So we bring a much, much deeper bench than the typical middle market has on their payroll. It just wouldn't be practical for them to have the type of experts or the breadth or depth of expertise. And this could be anything from quite literally the way that you go out to the market and buy property casualty insurance or health benefits or telecom infrastructure or your MRO, your maintenance repair, operational supplies, even trucking, parcel those kinds of expenses. You just do the best you can. And our operating assumption throughout is that our, all our clients do a great job based on what they know and their experience. We just try to help provide them a force multiplier, if you will, so that they can become better at what they're doing and we can help them by leveraging our expertise. And then along the course of the engagement with our client, we'll actually transfer that knowledge, transfer that power so that they can carry on so that they're not always fully reliant on us. Okay, so say there's a company, they've never heard about you, they're trying to do this on their own. Whose job is it normally? Is it the CFOs, the controller? Who is supposed to be right now, currently, man? And I'm thinking of it in the terms of, you'll have a startup, few people, then they might bring on a bookkeeper, then who should be keeping track of all this at every step of the company as it grows? See, that's a great question. In terms of showing them best practices is, you really have to embed a cost-conscious culture in an organization. It's, so it's kind of everybody's job. And what we're telling our clients is you should think about company resources like they're your own. Spend company resources like it's, it's coming out of your wallet or off of your paycheck. Well, isn't it, that kind of the opposite to work at a company? Isn't the goal to use that expense account as much as possible? And Well, yeah, there's some great stories to tell about expense accounts. Yeah, we can, I can talk a little bit about that. But really, it really, from a best practices perspective, you can't always, because of the velocity of the business in general, particularly now, you can't always spend the amount of time you'd like to spend with whatever supplier or whatever commodity or service that you're acquiring on behalf of your client. Everybody's too busy looking at month end, quarter end, year end. If you're a public entity, you're looking at your earnings report. So all hands on deck for revenue producing activities. And in the middle market, you're not really having the same focus. I use the example of... Before the example, for our audience out there, middle market's pretty relative term. Can you talk sure. about kind of the size? The way that we look at it? Sure. We look at middle market companies at being kind of anywhere between 
15, 20 million dollars to about 250 to maybe 500 million is our sweet spot. And you're talking revenue, correct? Right. Top line. Perfect. Yeah. So going back to my example of how everybody's paying attention, looking out the, you know, the windshield, nobody's looking in the rearview mirror. So that's why a curious financial executive, the CFO or any of the C-suite execs, that's one of the reasons they hire us is that they have a suspicion that they might be leaving money on the table, but the reality is they don't have any time to really do it justice to do the investigation. And should they do the investigation, they're not always necessarily sure they're going to get the result they're looking for. So it, why wouldn't you want to have a qualified third party to do that legwork for you? And we just happen to be in a very unique position to be able to do that on a very broad basis. We can work and we try to, when we have the conversation with our clients, what we're really asking them to do is think about what are the most important, call it expense items that they worry about now, right now with where we're at economy-wise here post-COVID as we claw our way back to some level of normalcy. Everybody's looking at supply chain. Everybody's looking at spiraling costs, wage challenges, workforce challenges. There's cyber attacks. I mean, there's all kinds of challenges that keep senior executives up at night. So we want to be able to provide kind of a blanket approach for our clients so that they can call on us as they need us right? We don't necessarily do a full-throated 40-odd category dive into every imaginable expense category. What we really want to do is get the client's data. And all we need from a client is 12 months of general ledger or vendor payment report for the same period. And then we can use the business intelligence and analytical capability that we've invested in over the last seven or eight years so that we can very quickly do a an assessment. And that's the word we use because it's an assessment, but it's not an awful lot unlike what happens when you take your car to the dealership. What's the first thing they do is they, they plug something into an outlet underneath the dashboard and it's going to give the diagnostic codes about, okay, this is, I got to look at your whatever, your brakes or your electrical system, whatever. We do much the same thing through our assessment, our analytics, except that we will provide a snapshot. We look at it through our lens, which is different than our clients generally look at it because it's the old saying, familiarity breeds contempt, right? We're very objective about what our clients are doing or how they're doing it to how you can improve your condition. How can you reduce costs in a sustainable way, in a meaningful way, so that's going to create additional incremental cash flow that you didn't have before that you can reinvest into your business. Again, how are you going to hire or retain key employees? You're going to help fund initiatives that maybe didn't get it across the line in the last budget period, but we're going to help you understand if there is that kind of meaningful financial improvements that's going to be available to the client. So in an earlier conversation, we talked about tailspend. Right. So for our audience, can you give a definition of what tailspend is and kind of where you see companies might have this issue? Great question. And thank you for that. Tailspend refers to just, it's like a Pareto analysis. And it goes back to the, the, everybody's familiar with the concept of the 80-20. In the parlance of supplier management or supply base, you have, keep it simple. Let's say you have 100 suppliers. 
20 of those suppliers are going to be providing you 80% of your procurement dollars in terms of goods and services that you're acquiring, which means that 80 suppliers are going to be supplying the remaining 20% of those dollars. So if you've got 20 suppliers that's carrying the lion's share of your procurement, you're probably going to understand them pretty well. You're going to, you're going to have resources. You're going to know them pretty well. They're strategic to your business. Alternatively, those 80 suppliers, you're not really going to be able to manage them. You don't even, you may not even know what they're doing. So the opportunity is to produce sustainable savings out of that 20% of the total procurement. Here's a great category, excuse me, a great example. We have a client, a larger client, they had over $100 million in procurement dollars on an annual basis. What they were, it was like $106 million, something like that. Anyway, we realized once we saw their data that they were spreading that over 1,460-odd different suppliers. They're a multiple location, two division, five locations. So it sort of sets the stage for the classic left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. But we did a little deeper dive on that and found and discovered that the top 10% of their suppliers, not 20, but the top 10%, were managing like almost 90% of their procurement. So that really mean if you had 1,400 suppliers, that mean you've got 100 of them, you don't know what they're doing and you don't have the time to chase it down and to rationalize it. So that's kind of the indirect analytical assessment to the dollar, exactly what suppliers doing what, where, what are they providing, how much, where is it being delivered, who's buying it, what are they paying for it. We can give all of that granular detail and produce it in a, and present it in a dashboard for the senior executives so that they can see, they can gain that visibility. And that's something that middle market just, it, they just don't have. Okay. So then with that, the tailspin, those 1300, what's some advice for companies then? Do they go back to the, those companies and maybe say, hey, this is what they're doing. Maybe renegotiate these prices or you don't need the 1300, get rid of 300 of them or what's normally a result? Great. Another great question. Yes and yes. I mean, you through the rationalization process, you have to figure out where can you gain the greatest leverage. So if you have, and again, this is our analytics will show this, we'll do a, we'll show every, every expense category and we'll show every, the top five suppliers and then the next five and then the balance and then make some decisions about, okay, do you want to keep those top 10 suppliers? Is there a way to leverage the 10? Maybe you want to leverage it to six or seven. The balance of those suppliers, it probably makes sense that you're going to have to consolidate at some point. Just from a think of it from a back office perspective. If you're actively buying product from that entire supply base, maybe you're probably not, but let's say you're even buying from 80% of that tail, right? What does that cost you from a back office perspective to issue a purchase order, to receive product, to pay a supplier? Those are all costs that have to be considered. Oftentimes aren't because it isn't necessarily evident from just looking at a general ledger or even an AP report. You have to really understand who you're paying and who you're buying from. And maybe there are ways that you can leverage that spend. So wait. Michael, you're telling us all this amazing information that these middle market owners can use all that. So what about that, those vendors for the bulk that maybe that you'd said supplied for 90%, do they go then back and renegotiate with them or do they leave that group alone? 
We look at that on a case-by-case, a client-by-client basis. It depends on what our client's looking to do, looking to achieve. They may have great capability in place already. We decide collectively that it doesn't make sense for us to go over that ground. Alternatively, they may want us to look at everything or as a double check. So again, it's a, we take it on a client by client basis. So what kind of business sectors would you say maybe there's the most, I don't want to say tailspin, but maybe the processes that are the most inefficient or is there certain business sectors that you see have more problems than others? I mean, I'd almost guess Silicon Valley startups would have just no kind of order in how they pay things or monitor money (laughs) or that, but what have you seen? Well, it's interesting. We're industry agnostic and we get a chance to look at kind of everything, manufacturing, wholesale distribution, software development, technology development. And there are slight variations or slight differences. Manufacturing tends to be a very rich environment for us. In the technology space, particularly smaller companies that are, uh, call it startup, or maybe they're even just in revenue. If you look at the decision-making for those kinds of companies, they're not full-throated, staffed organization. In technology, oftentimes a lot of the financial decisions are really getting made, or even high-level procurement decisions are being made by like the chief technical officer, because they're moving so fast. They're mo- they don't have a lot of time to bring people around the table and make decisions that involve a lot of contemplation. They need to make decisions very quickly because they're looking to get to market as quickly as they can to get a robust product. They have investors that are after them, what have you. So it's interesting, in my view, where effect is most heavily found or felt, and they tend to be Organizations like in healthcare, nonprofits, actually, nonprofits, I can get to that's a separate, I have a whole story on nonprofits, but manufacturing, distribution, and manufacturing is such a big umbrella, right? Because inside manufacturing, you've got food and beverage, you've got agribusiness, you've got chemicals, you've got, you name it, right? You're even large construction companies. We really try to stay as objective as possible because we never know what we're going to find. I don't know if that helps answer your question. So then if a CFO was here right now, with everything going on in the world, depending on what his company is, what do you think he would be thinking of for the next six or 12 months? Or she. Or she, right? If you look at all the evidence right now, CFOs, they always have a very keen eye on cost, but they look at things much larger across the organization. They're looking at cost of capital, efficient use of capital. They're looking at how are they going to grow the organization. If if there's a human capital element, they're going to be looking at that. I mean, just taken as a species, if you look at how CFOs have evolved or what they're being asked to do now that they perhaps weren't asked to do eight or 10 years ago, They're now being asked to weigh in on every major decision in an organization. And it's human capital, it's financial markets, it's sales plans. It's there, they are really becoming the eyes and the ears of the CEO or the ownership because they have an eye on everything and they're just being heavily tasked to become expert and to weigh in. And it's a very difficult position for to fill any organization. The chief financial officer is really the one of the toughest, the hottest seat in the C-suite. Okay, then with that, challenges all around, what can that CFO or what can that organization, what can they outsource 
And what should they keep in house? Cut costs, cut expenses. Where, where, where can they reduce? Well, every organization's a little bit different. There's no sort of canned answer because I can show you two seemingly identical organizations and I can show you different results. Where can they reduce every the conversation today with many for many businesses is the how do we get down the how do we digitize our business? How do we get to the Internet of Things, the manufacturing 4.0, whatever you want to call it, Internet 4.0. So everybody wants to get as many of the mundane tasks digitized and automated, the rush to automation. AI is playing a bigger and bigger role. Machine learning, all of those te- those technologies are playing a huge role in certainly in the enterprise, but certainly also the, the down into the middle market as well. There's a lot of suppliers. There's a lot of technology out there that middle market companies can bring in either as a contractor or they can bring in and make their own. It just, I hate to, I don't want to be wishy-washy about this, but it really just depends on what the needs of the particular business is. What are the, what's the strategy that's in play? That'll help drive decisions around what do you keep in-house? What do you hire out? Years and years ago, simple procurement is being outsourced to India or call centers being outsourced elsewhere to the Philippines. That's not necessarily going away because it can be done substantially less cost. And there's no, that's not a a mystery. The real challenge is getting the, the meaning. It's really, what does it really mean? I mean, it's one thing to get the simple tasks outsourced. That's fine. But how do you really, how do you get value? How do you really create value? For the organization. And that's just, I think that's just uh, things like that's above the waterline. It's like part of the iceberg that you can see. The real challenge for ownership, for senior leadership is really understanding what's happening below the waterline. Speaking of waterline, speaking of all these countries, over the last few years of pandemic, supply chains disrupt. From your insight expertise, what you've seen with middle market companies, kind of can you shed some light on this and where we are right now with things? What what did you see happening with companies over that time? In this, Just focus on the supply chain. Well, it's getting a little better. The challenge in supply chain is you can characterize it a number of ways. I like to think of it in two ways. There's always a, there's a whipsaw effect. And if you think about what happened at the outset of the pandemic, when people started seeing challenges in availability on material, they would overcommit on inventory. They'd buy everything they get their hands on in a kind of a what if scenario. It's like, I better have it now because I know I'm going to need it later and I'm not sure if I'll be able to get it. Well, that creates that whole problem around having you've overcommitted on your capital, your working capital, because you bought and hopefully have acquired a ton of raw material. And then when the pandemic goes through and demand for a lot of product evaporates, then you have no real demand for what you bought. And so you create this. The other the other analogy I like or metaphor is the, the snake. When the snake is finished eating, it has to work its way down the snake, right? So you have behaviors around your planning that come back to bite you because you now have disappearing demand. And then you have to go, that works its way back. So you you have continuous challenges around everything that you're buying or hopefully getting and you can't get because they shut ports down. We had a huge port challenge of getting product here. And then what that really means is 
quite literally, is that you have so much logistics capacity that's out of place. You have a overabundance of containers that can't leave foreign ports. Then you have an abundance of containers that are away from the port. And it's not just the container, it's the chassis that the container sits on. It's the tractor trailer that pulls the chassis. Everything is completely out of whack. It's not in sync. It's not in equilibrium. So because of that, you see incredible spikes in pricing that everybody you had prior to the pandemic years ago, you could see, you could predict with some accuracy how container pricing would ebb and flow. And years ago, it was was largely considered that Walmart owned most of the containers coming in out of China. 60% of everything on the water was probably a Walmart product, which is, yeah, it's pretty impressive, right? So you would see these containers and you know that you have to get containers booked in order to get product into a port so that you can get product into distribution and onto a shelf somewhere because everything happens around everything happens around the holiday season right so pandemic comes along there's all kinds of misfiring in the demand signals prices some of the most egregious profit taking was by these container companies these shipping companies they were reporting literally billions with a b in profit quarterly profit far more far stripping away what they'd done in the past so there's a lot of opportunity there's no shame i guess in in being profitable i'm a an unashamed capitalist but at the end of the day pigs eat but hogs get slaughtered so it was just it graded so many to see these incredible profit margins that that these companies were reporting and then you hear companies like home depot and everybody all the other big box they're actually leasing their own container ships because they're not going to, they, they don't want to play to being held hostage by these shipping companies. But you still have the challenge of getting the containers out onto the ships and out of the port. Then that's when you see all the, you see 100 ships lying off anchor in out of Long Beach or wherever. And they just try to change the demand, get the containers going through the canal, up into Houston, up into New Orleans, up around to Florida and up the East Coast. So you would see people or the or you would see the effort being made to circumvent those clogs in the supply chain there was even some conversation that containers traveling west out of china could make it to hamburg and then hamburg to a west coast or an east coast port like two weeks faster than what they can what they were experiencing on west coast ports that's crazy okay let's go back to the cost reduction sure early stage companies seed series a series b series c where can they i mean they might not have 1400 vendors <laughs> right they might not have hundreds of millions in revenue sure where can they find cost save it becomes earlier i mentioned the mindset you have to make you have to make expense management or cost management you have to make it, build it into the company culture. If you spend a little more time taking a look at methodology as much as what you're buying, that will help, that will be helpful. What do you mean by methodology? Everybody likes to think that I can send one of my, or somebody who's out on lunch can stop by Costco and pick something up, whatever it is, right? Or you can stop by Staples or you can stop by wherever. That's a well-intentioned activity, but it may not necessarily yield the best result. It's not the best way to do it, but it's an awareness thing. You don't know what you don't know, right? So what we would try to tell clients is that there's lots of ways that you can 
set up procurement for a non-procurement savvy organization, you just have to give it a little bit more thought. And it isn't necessarily that going to Costco is a bad idea, but it may not necessarily be the best alternative. You have to investigate a little bit more. And really, it boils down to needs analysis and whatnot. When a company is at Series B, Series C, where they're now their capital raises are in the millions or the tens of millions, it becomes a little bit more important for them to look at their strategy around how do they want to best use the capital that they are their investors are giving them. So it becomes, again, you, if you think twice, it's another great analogy, measure twice, cut once, right? It's the same, it's the same thing. Just think about what you want to spend or what you need and then fig- figure it out. There's lots of ways that you can do that. And quite frankly, there are alternatives. There are buying groups that you can look at that are generally set up for smaller organizations that don't have the infrastructure. They don't care to invest in the headcount to do it. They're still product focused. They're revenue focused. So there are alternatives out there. And would you say that of thinking about things before you do it, would that be the best way to install this in day one from a company's culture to go about thinking about their expenses? Or how do you set that in from day one? That mindset is part of the, should be part of the process to bring in your employees, to bring them under the idea that you're looking at spending wisely. And as I said before, give them the idea that they're spending their money and not just spending the investor's money or they're spending company money or what have you. They really have to, you have to force that. Force is a tough word, but you really have to encourage and reward those behaviors. You I've seen it where smaller companies are, they really pay attention to the, the idea of the month. It works. I've seen people been, they get dinner for two because they came up with an idea. They were thoughtful about it. It's that kind of thing that works. And it, ins- it actually inspires loyalty. You make it a competition. I've also seen situations where they actually show it and on the shop floor. If you're, if like I was, I visited a manufacturer a couple of years ago, small manufacturing operation, but they actually had a leaderboard with everybody's name on the leaderboard. And what is it? What are their contributions? What are they doing? What are the ideas that they're, and it was expressed in terms of, okay, they calculate the actual dollar save. Oh, that's genius. Yeah. Okay. Going to expenses. Sure. How often should the CEO and the CFO be looking at their expenses? Is this a quarterly thing, every six months, a monthly thing? How often? And does that vary with the life cycle of the company? It takes on a different role over time. It's one thing to look at like travel and entertainment. That's kind of a separate world. The how often they should be looking at, that's a question that can oftentimes be answered based on the sophistication of the organization. I have another client, they're a billion dollar player and they look at expenses every week. They have an expectation. There's a report that filters up through management that gets summarized for finance. I don't believe the CFO actually sees it all the time. He certainly sees it maybe monthly, certainly quarterly. But the idea is that these organizations are going to look to 
really understand what their patterns are, what their behavioral, what behavioral changes can be made. That goes back to the notion of if you can measure it, you can manage it. So going right there, if you work with a company, what are some of the biggest surprises that they might see when you sit down and you run one of these reports or you just sit down and have a conversation with them? Where's the biggest surprise? And I'm also kind of curious if you're coming in to help these companies to cut all these expenses, especially we're hearing in the news all day long, the economy is going in one direction that might not be favorable. Why wouldn't anyone want this? So sorry, two questions there. Okay. Try to remember both. But <laughs> Let's take them one at a time. What was your first question is why, right? What surprises? What's the surprise? And what? then why wouldn't they want that surprise, it's, I guess you'd it's say. It's interesting. Some of the unintended consequences of when we get involved with a client is really, we can highlight potential Im- efficiency improvements that client hasn't, it may not be aware of. And those are like the unintended consequence, right? Because we're looking at, and we don't use the word cost cutting because that's not always the outcome. We use the word, the phrase cost optimization. If you're optimizing a cost, you might actually be increasing the cost, but you're doing it because you have a greater efficiency that you're achieving. So you may not necessarily reduce the cost. It might remain the same, but You've discovered an underlying inefficiency of process that you can correct. So when we're looking at projects that optimize clients' costs, it always pops up in the granularity in the analysis because we start seeing patterns and we can identify the pattern and put it in a as granular a report as a, as a client may want to see, or we can provide dashboard capabilities so that they can just periodically look at outcomes. The stakeholder level, when we start having conversations with stakeholders, and really in, invariably when we get brought in to a client, we spend the first 15 minutes letting them know that we're not there to do their jobs. We're, you don't have to be afraid of us. We're not there to grade your paper, call the baby ugly, whatever you want to say. We're there to help you cast a wider net, if you will, right? We're there to give you some insight on, you may not have, show you some things you didn't know necessarily, and see if through our methodology, if one of the options we propose would present a meaningful opportunity for financial improvement. At the end of the day, though, you make that decision. We'll just we lead the horse to water. And so, with that, we're running out of time. If anyone wants to find out more information about you, what you're working on, what's the best way to go about doing it? Well, they can look me up on LinkedIn. They can they can email me. I'm pretty accessible. Email. What would be an email? To oh, for me, audience? it's first na- it's first initial last name at expensereduction.com. So mplesha at expensereduction.com. All right. We'll have that information in the show notes. And for our audience out there, when I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley podcast, I'm an investment banker focused on mergers, acquisition, growth capital. Please connect with me on LinkedIn or go to our website, thesiliconvalleypodcast.com, where you can check out all our past episodes and stay up to date with what we're working on. So with that, Michael, I want to thank you for your time this week on the Silicon Valley podcast. Thanks very much, Sean. Great to be here. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.